ever play roulette? On occasion. Well, let me give you a word of advice. Always bet on black. Welcome back, baseball amigos, to episode 57 of the Banish to the Pen podcast. A group baseball blog produced by fans of the podcast, Effectively Wild. I am your host, Ryan Sullivan, editor-in-chief of NatsGM.com and the Baron of All Baseball Podcasts. I am happy to have uh, two, I'd say, mainstays with the Banish to the Pen crew. Uh, I have Barry Gilpin with me today, and I have Mick Reinhardt. Uh, Barry and Mick, say hi to the internet, I guess. Hello. Howdy. Well, guys, thank you very much for joining me. Uh, we're recording this on a Saturday uh, on a holiday weekend. So first and foremost, uh, happy 4th of July to you guys and uh, to everybody that will be listening to this. And drink well, eat well, and uh, be safe with the fireworks. So so let's uh, start the way we start every week. Uh, let's have, a, have you guys introduce yourselves to the audience, uh, Twitter handle, uh, who you're a fan of, where they can find your work, if it's uh, anywhere besides uh, Banished to the Pen. All that good stuff. So uh, we'll start alphabetically. Barry, uh, introduce yourself, my friend. I'm Barry. I like the Reds. The Reds suck. We'll touch on this later. I'm on Twitter, at GilpDog, G-I-L-P-D-A-W-G. And I've really got into wrestling again lately, which I'm kind of disturbed about. (laughs) Never be disturbed about that, my friend. Never be disturbed. I watched that Ricochet... uh, Will Osprey match and that's that was pretty amazing. So you you actually linked me to that on Twitter. So thanks for that. Yeah, that was uh, that was one of the better things I've seen in a long time. So uh, okay, Mick. Uh, once again, same question. Well, first of all, I have no idea what they just talked about. <laughs> but secondly, uh, you can get me on Twitter at at Mayflies, and uh, I write. Uh, about the Harrisburg Senators, the AA uh, affiliate of the Washington Nationals, and tweet about them and, and so on. Uh, obviously, having covered them for the last, this will be my sixth season, uh, I kind of follow the Nationals for that reason, uh, because of uh, having those guys come through the system. Uh, also a Yankee fan, but uh, don't hold that against me. <laughs> very, very, very cool. So, um um, goodness, why am I just blanked completely on what I was going to ask you. So we're going to move forward from that, and uh, let's just go uh, move right ahead. Um, Barry, I want to start with you this week, if I can. Um, first topic that uh, I have kind of on the agenda is uh, you've been doing some work on the current shortstop crop in Major League Baseball. And with that, I just kind of want to turn it over to you and uh, kind of let you introduce what you've been doing and, and start from there. Well, I mean, I didn't really do that much. I wrote a piece about a month ago uh, that, quali- about, that uh, qualifies that's work come on talking about Alexander Bogarts <laughs> is like all of a sudden really good um, and he's still really good um, and I kind of I was ahead of the curve on that one a little bit it was like a couple of weeks before people were really talking about it so uh, I got lucky on that one he could have bombed and not like a retard <laughs> but uh, so I mean we've got a lot of great shortstops and I'm not even including Manny Machado because he's a known commodity at this point. But you've got Lindor, you got Bogarts, you got Correa, you got Seager, and heck, even a guy like um, Simeon, you know, deserves a mention. He's having a quietly sneaky, pretty good year. And you got the Diaz kid at St. Louis, who's he, he's uh, regressed back down to probably where he should have been from that hot start. But he looks like a player. And a couple of years ago. The shortstop crop in Major League Baseball was pretty barren, so it's kind of a interesting trend here. Yeah, that's uh, and it kind of reminds a little bit of what was it the late '90s, where all of a sudden we had Nomar and Miguel Tejada and Jeter and A Rod, kind of as that you know new wave of shortstops. It feels like you know I don't know a half generation or whatever it is later we're seeing kind of a very similar thing. That does kind of it is kind of similar, yes. But they're all very different players. It is the the odd thing about all four of them. Kind of similar if we wanted to take it back to the you know the four that I just mentioned you know fifteen years ago. But it's you know Lindor's the the glove man and Correa's maybe got the ceiling and Seager's got the hit tool and you know it's just it's interesting. What do you think, Mick? Let me let me jump you in here. I mean thoughts. 
Oh yeah, I, I definitely I thought back to that late '90s or mid '90s surge as well uh, with this crop. Uh, I wonder how many of these guys uh, both will you know in five, ten years are we going to look back on much like we look on that Sports Illustrated photo of the shirtless shortstops and go which one of these is the uh, Edgardo Alfonso or Ray Ordonez of the group or whatever, you know, whoever it was that are also on that cover that we, we don't quite remember. Um, Heck, but, we can even say Nomar. I mean, goodness, he was as good as he could have been, and then, what, three years later, he was basically almost out of the game. Right. So, you know, are any of these guys going to fall into that? Uh, but you you look at the crop, and like Barry said, that, you know, it's as good as it's possibly ever been. And, you know, I like the upside of almost every every guy out there that, that is in a young shortstop position. Yeah, the only one that I question is maybe Seeger, and that's more to just a defensive question long term. But otherwise, I mean, he's what a fantastic year. And you mentioned Simeon. I, I I don't want to overlook him. I think he hit his 17th home run yesterday. I mean, this is a guy that's. I mean, what a step forward he's taken on a bad Oakland team. And his defense has actually been acceptable if you believe the metrics. Yeah, so. good word. And acceptable. It, it was a tire is- fire last year, so. And just speaking from a Nationals fan, you know, point of view, we've got Trey Turner knocking on the door. He could be, I don't want to put him in the same category as those four, but he could certainly be the, you know, the next rung of, of kind of top end shortstops. And we've got, you know, Bregman for Houston. Houston was drafted last year. Brendan Rogers for Colorado. I mean, we could be, you know, seeing another wave in a year or two of, of guys as well. Yeah, I like Turner a lot. And uh, I think Bregman's probably going to profile as a third baseman, if I recall correctly, but. Yeah, good call on Rodgers. I actually drafted him in a dynasty league, so I'm pretty happy about that. And Mick, let me ask you, you've seen Turner shoot as much as anybody probably around. What are your thoughts on Trey Turner? Yeah, I think offensively he's uh, almost as good as everyone else that we've talked about. I think he doesn't have a lot of – he doesn't have as much power as, say, Correa or even Cedar, but his speed uh, makes up for it a lot. And also with the the speed, you know, any ball he puts into play, he's liable to uh, beat it out for base hit. Um, you know, you worry about his defensive abilities at shortstop, I'll say. He, he's had some issues there, and they've even, I don't think it's long-term, but I think they've, they've even uh, put him in the outfield in the last couple games, I think mostly because of what, they're, what the Nationals need right now and need somebody in the outfield who can hit leadoff, and he kind of fits that mold of, if he can play center field uh, acceptably. Yeah, that's a great point. I guess the best way to maybe wrap this this thing is uh, maybe we should predict who's going to be the long-term is going to be the best in this kind of group of four and who will be the, the bust, so to speak. Uh, I'm going to put Barry on the spot first. You wrote the piece, so I'm going to, I'm going to put you on the spot. Who's going to end up being the best of this group and who ends up being the worst? Well, not counting Machado because I think he's – if he stays it short, he's the best. But uh, I'm going to go, I think, off board and say Lindor. For the best? Yeah. Okay. I could see that. And, gosh, I don't know about a bust. Maybe either Correa or Seeger. They'll hit, but they may not stick at short. They may have moved to third or something which I guess would disqualify them from being talked about as a shortstop. That's really the only thing I can come up with on that one. Ugh. Yeah, that's that's tough. Uh, Mick? You know, I know in this uh, opinion-based uh, media world we live in nowadays, I should be disagreeing with everything Barry says vehemently, but I actually agree with him. I, I think Lindor at short is going to be the, the best solution long-term, but only because I think Correa is not long for that position. I think he's going to move off to third. Uh, otherwise, I would I would put him at the top of the list just because I, obviously the the upside on him is just better and, and bigger, I think. Um, I think somebody like Simeon is good and, and, and is viable. I just don't think that maybe offensively he's going to reproduce the kind of season he's had up till now. Um, so I don't know if I'd necessarily call him a bust. I just don't know if he's qualifies for you know, the kind of the uh, all-star numbers he's put up this season. Yeah, that's a that's a good call. Um, let's see. To be different, I'm going to go with Correa is going to be the best of the group. Um, 
that's really going off board naming him one of the best five players in baseball right now going to be the best of the group well really hoping that limb will hold for me uh, yeah uh but i think i'm gonna go with uh seager is the bust of the group and for really no other reason than i just i don't love the body i feel like it's a little thick and maybe a little stiff for a 23 year old i mean and, and i'm unbelievably picking nits here but uh that's the only reason and, the, and really the only thing. I mean, I just think Lindor's defense is going to be too good, and, and I, I love Bogart's two-way game. I, I just I think he's really taken a step forward, and I, I think Correa's a superstar. I just think he's had a couple of bumps in the road this season. So, of course, it's like, you know, picking between, you know, four different types of free cold beer. It's, it, you really can't go wrong. And this is Budweiser. Yeah, well, <laughs> still free and cold. So I went there. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, on that, guys, uh, let's. Uh, I, I want to move ahead a little bit. I do, uh, Barry. I don't want to throw any salt in the wounds on a tough season, but I want to talk to you a little bit about the Cincinnati Reds right now. But yeah. I, I want to go more from the perspective of, okay, we're a month from the trade deadline, give or take. Whenever, whenever anybody's listening to this, and, and I kind of want to put you in the GM seat for, you know, if you had one day to be the GM, what would you do to try to turn this franchise around, or do you think they're on the right track? I mean, yes and no. Um, they've got, you know, a lot of pitching depth in the system, and, well, some of the majors now with Cody Reed and um, Michael Lorenzen looks like he's a probably a future closer or setup man out of the pen. I went to the game last Friday. It was his uh, debut for the season because he'd been hurt, and he was hitting 100. And it wasn't a hot gun in the stadium because I went back and looked on Brooks and it was legit. Um, and uh, but yeah, they don't have any bats at all, Harley, coming up except Winker. And so and we've been like, talking about Winker for six years. It feels like. And he he's not having the the best year. The OBP is there, but I think his last I looked, his slugging is actually lower than his OBP. He was he was like. <laughs> 280, 360, 340, or something like that. That was that's been a couple weeks ago. It may have changed since then. Mm. Um, and so we're kind of in a weird spot because I think you've you've got too many pitchers and they're not all going to wind up good anyway. And you have no hitters, and not everybody can be the Mets. It's a good idea to say let's get all these arms and then we'll have. Our Cindergard, Matt's, Degrom rotation, but that's not realistic. That hap- lightning's not going to strike twice there. I do like Reed a lot. The results aren't there yet, but the peripherals and the stuff that is there, and uh, but we'll see a, about. It's we'll a see lot about of th- it's a lot of three, four type starter profiles, though. Like you're saying, it's not the one twos like you're saying about a Cindergard and a Harvey and, and Degrom type players. Yeah, and we'll see about Stevenson and. We'll see about Amir Garrett. So, and I actually I like Garrett. And I like Reed. I think Stevenson's probably my. If I was doing a draft of the uh, Reds pitching prospects, if you want to go effectively wild style, I would take. Uh, I'd probably take Reed one, uh, Garrett two, and Stevenson three, which is probably the opposite of the way most of the uh, experts would have it. But yeah, I I love I pay Reed. more attention than a lot of these people do. So. Yeah, I like Reed's floor a lot. I think he, I, I'm not sure he has the ceiling of the other two, but I love Reed's floor. His slider's pretty nasty. But okay, so uh, let me get you back on, on the focus then. So now we've got Jay Bruce with what a year and a half left on his deal, and, and he doesn't even have to be added next year. Uh, Brandon Phillips uh, is, still hang, is still or hanging is around. We've got uh, who else? You've got some other guys that are, you know, some other players that could go. I mean, what would you do? What are and what are they going to do? Um, I think Bruce is done. He's gone. Um, he's having a good bounce back year. Uh, his defense has regressed quite a bit, but he's, I think he's gotten, you know, he had a couple of bad breaks where he made he missed a few easy plays he should have made, and it's made his stats look worse. Um, but he's, he has lost some speed. Like as somebody who's been watching him since, you know, 2008 or whatever, he's lost some speed. He might be a left fielder now or a DH instead of a right fielder. But you know, if you're in a, 
if you're going to put up a weighted runs created plus of 135, you can you can work around that. And I, I was I admit I was wrong. I've been I've been crapping on Jay Bruce for like three years now, and I admit that I was wrong. Um, so at least for this year, I was wrong. But uh, I do want to talk about Adam Duvall. And that's because, a, and that's a great name. Bring him up because I've you know he's been a you know kind of a prospecty guy. You knew him a little bit, and now all of a sudden he's I don't know one of the top left fielders in baseball. I, I would trade Adam Duvall yesterday. <laughs> His line is two fifty two, two eighty eight, five sixty six, and I did some play indexing. I set it for guys who slugged over five hundred and had an on base percentage of two ninety nine or less. That's only been done four times ever, and two of them are this year. So, short sample. Dave Kingman, 1976. Mike Jacobs, 2008, whoever the hell that is. There's a name. Yeah, the old uh, Mets and, and Marlins first baseman. I got him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then Duvall, and then the Oakland Chris Davis, which is also this season. And if you lower the requirement of slugging to 450, it's happened 27 times where a guy has had those numbers and OPS plus of over 100. So, is that something you want to hang your hat on? If the, if I'd, I'd float them out there and see if somebody bites, because I, I see this being a bit of a flash in the pan, quite honestly. That's interesting, too, because, you know, I could see a, a team looking at him like a Chris Davis, uh, like Oakland did. I, I could see a similar kind of a trade. But then again, I mean, this could be a, a changing trend, because as I look back, the 27 guys who had the OPS plus of uh, over 100, there's six this year, but like it's a small sample. And someone has done it at least once in every season back until 2009. And before that, it almost never happened. Hmm. And you would think, you know, going back to pre-2009, that's the steroid era. And so you would almost think that there would be some guys in the steroid era who had no on-base skills but would, you know, get roided up and pop a bunch of homers. But it seems to be the other the other way, which I thought was interesting. And um, also with Duvall, he, um, even in the major, the majors or the minors, he's never slugged 566, except for when he slugged 599. But that was in the PCL. And that's an extreme hitters league. So I think he's having his career year, and now is the time to cash that chip in. Okay, I can see that. Mick, let me tag you in. I just uh, wanted to see if you had any questions for Barry or any comments about uh, about the Reds. Yeah, I actually saw Duvall when he came through with Richmond, uh, the Giants AA, uh, when he was still part of their organization before the Mike Leap trade. And I agree with Barry that you know I, I think there's potential there, and I think that maybe this is a – that this is something that is long term he can he can sustain but odds are good it's not and and i would cash that chip in now while the value is as high as it's going to get but on a separate note i i did want to ask barry a question about the reds in terms of with all this young pitching they have uh and the fact that their manager is a former pitching coach is this is he doing a, a good job of of both managing the arms and, you know, developing these kids uh, to be major league ready? Or is this something where it's almost a disconnect from what his former job used to be to now? I'm, I'm curious about that. Uh, well, I've, I've been of the opinion that uh, Brian Price is the, uh, the Bo Porter of the Reds' rebuild and that as soon as the Reds think they're ready to win, they'll slice him, slide him right out. <laughs> but, um... I I think he does. I mean, he doesn't – he's pretty careful as far as not, you know, overworking the guys and stuff. Uh, he's not, you know, 2003 Dusty Baker or anything. Um, I don't – I don't like sometimes how he manages his bullpen. It's like, why are you using this guy here? But – like that that goes back to the Dusty era, frankly, and I think Price was probably making those calls even back then. It's like nothing really changed on that front when he got the job. So, yeah, I I think Price is a good pitching coach and a 
mediocre at best manager. So, and it's it's you know he'll wind up leaving somewhere and going and being a pitching coach somewhere, and people will say, "Hey, Brian Price is good again." But <laughs> the, the fans in Cincinnati right now, because you know a lot of fans they don't understand rebuilds and stuff. They just want to go to the park and watch their team win, and they never do. Cincinnati fans hate Brian Price. They there's a lot of anger right now in the Reds fan base, and I'm, I I understand it. I'm not angry at all. Um, I like watching Joey Votto, and I like watching Billy Hamilton run into walls, and I don't really like watching him hit that much. But um, and, and let me interject if I can, because that was the next name on my list is Billy Hamilton. What what is he? Is he a starter? Is he? not going to hit is he what do you see from him I guess going forward as a major league player I mean we know the speed but is he going to be able to you can't steal first base um do I think he'll be a league average hitter uh no but do I think that he could potentially hit enough with the speed in the defense to be you know a two to three win player sure I don't know that he will but it's there um so, we'll just have to see. I think he, people keep, I don't know, he talks about not wanting to switch hit anymore because he's better from the right side. But then, if you give up your platoon advantage against uh, the righties, does that negate the, your betterness from the right side? I don't know. That's something we'd have to cross that bridge when we get to, I guess. Well, it certainly hinders this. I mean, he loses a step and a half to first base. Not that he needs it, but... Certainly yeah, hinders him in that way. I don't think it matters with him. Uh, Mick, once again, do you have any uh, anything else? I've only got like one or two more questions for for Barry on the on the Reds. Nope, fire away. All right. Well, I just I want to have him play. I, what's going to happen in the next month? Who goes? Who stays? Um, Bruce is gone. Zach Cozart is gone. Maybe. That's probably all they'll do. I'd I'd throw Duval out there, but I don't think they will. And I, I might even consider throwing a Anthony Disclafani out there, see if someone bites. If you get a good return, I like him. You've got him controlled for another, I think, uh, four years. So you don't have to do anything. But if you get a Godfather offer, you know, go for it, because you know we need some more depth in the system, especially if you can get a couple of bats. Um. So it doesn't yeah. sound like you're a Peraza guy. I, well, I know you and I have talked about that, and you like Peraza. I haven't really seen enough of him to form an opinion yet, quite frankly. I mean, I think Brandon Phillips is, hor- like, he's horrible now. Like, I love the guy. He's been here for 10 years, 12 years, something like that. Um, but he's been awful this year, and I think at some point you've got to start getting him in the lineup more just to see what you have, and they've not been doing that, and I'm not sure why. I mean... Who really? I mean, Brandon Phillips has to understand. Like this team's going nowhere. You're just, you know. Well, he doesn't understand. I mean, he he should have been in Washington. I mean, I think you dodged a bullet there because he's been time. horrible. He's yeah. been horrible this year. He's been awful. But so uh, I think you. I think it worked out well for the Nats. Quite well, in fact. Yeah, I, I, I'm just throwing it out there, but I think Brandon Phillips is the most overrated player in this generation. Uh, I've never been a Phillips guy at all. So. Uh, well, that was a hot take. Damn. <laughs> I just, I, I think he's the master of, you know, he makes a lot of highlight plays on the TV because he doesn't have that much range. But that, that's just my take. So yeah, he's he's had he's had some good seasons. I, I I do agree with you. I don't know about the most overrated player of this generation, but I'd probably say top ten. I I have to think about that some more. Um, but yeah, you've got a point there. You do have a point. So, and the other, and the last thing I would just say about the Reds is somebody should buy low on JJ Hoover because that arm is legitimate and a change of scenery. He could be a really good reliever. Well, you know, I mentioned about you know how Reds fans yeah. hate Brian Price. Well, they really hate JJ Hoover. Wow. <laughs> I don't know why he looked really promising, and you know, like was that 2013? I think, and he's just fallen off the cliff. And I don't. It's like, dude. You don't have to throw fastballs down the middle. <laughs> you can the strike zone is bigger than that, and I don't understand. It's like he's got a mental. It's like a mental thing with him, I think, or something. Because 
You're right. I mean, the stuff's there, I think. Yeah, I think he just needs to change his scenery big time. But, you know, nonetheless. So, all right. Uh, I, I guess we beat up on the Reds enough. Um, so, let me move ahead if I can. And uh, I'm going to kind of tag Mick in a little bit. Uh, I, I want to get you, uh, if I could, and I want to give you a spot here to kind of talk about your recent piece that you wrote about uh, Portland's play-by-play man and kind of the way I said it with uh, Barry, I kind of want to just give you the floor to kind of talk about your work and what you did. Sure. Um, it, I did a feature on Mike Antonellis, who's the uh, Portland Sea Dogs, who are the uh, Boston Red Sox double-A affiliate. Uh, kind of a profile of his his life and his journey to where he's been. Uh, he's been the Sea Dogs now, uh, um, play-by-play man or uh, broadcaster since 2005. So he's been there uh, an awful long time, and I kind of wanted to use the piece as a as a way to show kind of I'll say the general public what what some of their lives are like the the broadcasters even because uh, in terms of what they do for a living uh, you know people think oh it's kind of a glamorous life but you know a lot of these guys just call these games for five months out of the season and get paid for just that and and then move on while others you know have to also do a lot of sales and sell uh tickets and suites and things like that so there's a balance of what guys do what in the league for that but also you know how that there's no real there's no real move up uh you know you're like in mike's case he's he's in portland since 2005 you know he'd love to move up he'd you know he, he loves it where he is but he you know he obviously has a dream you know to, to move higher up than that but unless guys retire that that rarely happens so it's one of those things where you know we see ma- we see minor leaguers come through the system and get promotions, but but rarely do we see these uh, broadcasters. In fact, uh, all twelve of the broadcasters who are in the uh, Eastern League this season were there last year as well. To give you an idea that you know ch- changeover doesn't happen very frequently. Not at all. I, I no. mean, Dave Jagler, I think, was with Pawtucket way back when he does the Nationals. Uh, radio broadcast now with Charlie Slows. I mean, that was a big time. I mean, you just didn't see somebody get pulled out from the minor leagues. I mean, that never happens. Like you say, who retires from that job? Right, exactly. So, so you know, it's it just, I just wanted to kind of show a glimpse into that and kind of what that journey is from, you know, when he had that dream as a kid to kind of be a broadcaster to what it took to kind of get to where he is now and to even know that as as happy as he is in his position, he just you know, he'd love to move up and it's just, it's just a long road. And give me a little bit, or give me, give the audience and myself a little bit of an insight into what their day is like both during the season and uh, what do they do in the off season? I mean, are they selling insurance? Are they, you know, taking side jobs? I mean, I can't imagine they're making enough money in five months in a minor league radio that they're covering their, you know, covering their bases. Right. Well, I can tell you exactly out of the 12 teams, half of them, employ their broadcaster full-time so in that case they're selling uh suites they're selling season ticket packages they're selling advertising uh in one case they actually have a uh, it's it's richmond with jay burnham he actually has a um pretty much media relations is his only job uh, he might do a few sales here and there but but mostly it's just that so, but that's half of them Mike is one of the six in the league that only works for that five months of the season for the team. He used to be on the other side of it, so he has some experience with that, but recently he's changed over to to being just those five months. Those guys typically do um, college broadcasting as well, uh, or in Mike's case, he hosts a uh, radio show on Saturday mornings in the area. He... um, he does hockey. He does men's and college basketball. He's a sideline reporter for UMass football. So it's one of those where, you know, they're picking up jobs here or there everywhere they can. I know like Tim Hyman covers the Binghamton women or broadcast for the women to, uh, Binghamton women's basketball college team. Uh, Mike Ventola of Reading does, uh, there's a women's basketball team out of New Jersey. I forget what college he works for. It's just one of those things where they, they are, you know, constantly kind of working seasons here, or there around their baseball schedule to to pick up jobs uh, left and right and what they can and to supplement their income. 
Mm-hmm. So, I mean, they have to really hustle to, to I don't want to say make ends meet, but to, you know, make a, a decent salary. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, and, and I know that part of that is, you know, much like the whole, the whole uh, um, minor league uh, lawsuit. And, you know, it's, it's providing them um, very much, you know, exposure. So that helps and, you know, everything else. But it still is a, a low a low paying job that, you know, has very little upside uh, on the grand scheme. And um, what is their day like during the season? You know, I mean, I think we think, oh, you just you hit the record button at seven, you turn it off at 10. But I'm guessing that's not quite the way it is. No, not at all. Um, usually, um, you know, if you let's let's just say after you get up and take care of, you know, some personal things, say, but let's say on a game day, you start work at noon. Uh, you might do game notes. You might have to talk to, you know, affiliates above you and below you, depending on if there's been player moves. Uh, you typically take the first bus to the park around, say, uh, I want to say the first away bus to a to a, a, a away park leaves around 2, I'll say. So you take that bus, and then you get to the stadium, and you continue with your notes. You continue with your preparation. Uh, you continue with, you know, your research on the opposition so that you're able to talk pretty easily about them. And, you know, you, you set up a, uh, a note structure, whether it be on your computer or actually on paper, so that you're able to talk about these things, you know, uh, to the audience seamlessly. Uh, and it's, it, is, it is a long job. Uh, again, your, your point is well taken that people think you show up at, you know, 6.30 and hit the record button. And that's not the case at all. Uh, a lot of these guys also do media relations. So any kind of uh, request that comes in to talk to somebody, whether it be on the road or at home, comes through them. And so they have to set that up. A lot of times they have to babysit the interview to make sure that you know mm-hmm. what they said the interview would be about is what it's about. And um, that's pretty time-consuming on their end as well. If you need a ticket in the scouting section, that's who you talk to. Yeah, no, that's – believe me, they are a very, very busy bunch of guys. Um, Barry, how about uh, – do you have anything anything you want to ask about or uh, kind of jump in? It's all you, man. All right. Uh, I, I definitely wanted to ask you, and you kind of answered <clears throat> it, but what is the washout rate for these guys? Because, I mean, you said that all 12 guys are back in the Eastern League, which sounds kind of surprising to me on, on the surface when there isn't much upward mobility, the salary can't be – you know, certainly crazy high. I mean, what? Is, how often are these guys washing out and deciding at, you know, 35 years old, you know what, I got to go get a, air quotes, real job? Yeah, I don't know how much, I mean, I'm trying to think in the last five. And I five, hate that real job thing, but you know what yeah. I'm trying to say. Yeah, absolutely. In the last five years, I, I'm trying to think of the, the broadcasters that have come through. You know, a lot of them have moved on to maybe other sports or other other areas, I'll say, of broadcasting. But a lot of them don't wash out where they're going out and, like your point, selling insurance full time or, you know, a lot of times when that happens, that happens more at the lower levels. It happens after you've maybe interned a couple of years or, you know, you, you, you have the full time job in the Florida State League. After two years, you're like, yeah, this is going nowhere. I need to, to your point, get a real job. What, what you know, the rest of the world would consider a real job. Um, so. It doesn't happen that often at the higher levels in terms of guys just completely giving up on the on the industry as a whole and moving on in terms you know they'll they'll more likely hook up with say a college where they're doing football and basketball or they're you know part of the media relations of a of a, another sports organization like an NFL team or something to that extent it, it'll happen more in that way than it will and dies just kind of giving up and, you know, becoming a data analyst or, you know, a, a dry cleaner or something like that. That makes a lot of sense, actually. When I, they use it as a stepping stone to another job in, in media relations. That makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah, you know, they, they, they are constantly, I'll say, building that tape, you know, that, that dream tape they want to have. Demo they, reel, yep. Yeah, they can get any job or, you know, they think they can get any job with that demo reel, yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, the other question uh, that kind of came to mind is, and I don't know if you, you got into it too much, but just what is the toll take on a family? And, and the fa- do these guys, are they single? Do they get divorced a lot like you hear in, you know, with scouts and kind of people in front offices kind of, I mean, you're away for 
maybe not five months, but shoot, I mean, your your schedule is very similar to the players. Oh yeah, they and and um, my knowledge and my history with some of these guys, it's not divorced so much, but you know, the marriages are that that people have are very understanding. You know, they, you know, the the wives know that that pretty much for five months of the year these guys are gone because even when they're home they're still really not there most of the time. So that five months is pretty much on them. And although I will say I'm going to, you know, tr- I'm quickly kind of in my head doing the math and I'm going to say almost half of them in the Eastern league are single or at least unmarried, I'll say. Um, and that does take a toll. I, I know in Mike's case, the the man I did the profile of, he's been single. He- he'd love to, you know, find somebody, but, it just doesn't kind of jive with his schedule and, and the work he needs to put in to kind of move up in this industry. Yeah, it's kind of tough to start dating somebody if, you know, all right, sorry, I'm going to be in Reading for the next week. Or, you know, it's a little tough. Yeah, oh, yeah, absolutely. And yeah. I can't be reached, you know, for 12 hours of the day. Yeah, you really need to find somebody who understands that. And there's, you know, that's pretty far and few between. Uh, and my final question on the piece is, is just kind of – was there something that you learned that surprised you or something that uh, you think the audience would particularly find uh, unexpected or surprising or whatever I'm looking for? Um, I, I think the most surprising thing to me was just how much he still loves his job after 11 years at the same organization, even though, like we said, there's very little possibility for movement up like he's kind of um very zen about it i'll say where i think a lot of other guys to your point uh from the question earlier might turn bitter or at least might you know have that kind of jaded pessimism he's not at all and that's pretty surprising now i will say that the other thing that kind of surprised me in this whole thing was that the red sox even though the minor league teams are not owned by the red sox organization they all kind of treat each other as family. Uh, I know last year when Don Orsello uh, was made, they made the, the Red Sox and Nesson made everybody take a week vacation or 10 days vacation. That's kind of a mandatory thing in their world. So when they did that, the AAA broadcaster, Josh Maurer from Pawtucket, moved up to cover Don's spot with Nesson. And Mike moved up to Pawtucket for 10 days to cover Josh's spot. And I thought that was really neat that, you know, you kind of give these guys an opportunity to kind of work higher than maybe what they have in the past to give that experience. And even though these clubs don't, you know, aren't owned by the same person, aren't owned by the same organization, they all work together. Uh, I know Mike also did a spring training game this season for Nesson. You know, it's one of those things where I think that as much as I, I'm almost loath to uh, admire the Red Sox for something, the opportunities that they give their broadcasters to kind of work as a family is, is pretty interesting and, pr- and pretty uh, neat. Yeah, uh, I, I think that's a perfect way to wrap that too. So um, the, the last thing I really wanted to touch on uh, this week, and, and I'd be remiss if, Mick, I didn't kind of talk to you about it, is uh, Lucas Giolito's first Major League start occurred, I guess, Tuesday night, as, as I always say, kind of depending on when everybody's listening to this. Uh, you've probably seen Giolito uh, as much as anybody in the Nationals organization. And uh, I'd I, I just first love to get your take on, uh, did you watch the game, your thoughts? What do you think of Giolito? And, and kind of we'll start from there. Yeah, I watched it not live, but I watched it after the fact. And uh, I thought he did – as well as I expected. Uh, earlier in the season, he was really struggling with his fastball command, and that still can come or go. Uh, but he seems to, since the beginning of this season, done a much better job of changing on the fly. And, you know, he's not waiting till his side session to maybe make some adjustments. He's making adjustments himself during the game, during and at bat, and I think that's really served him well as the season has wore on. And I, and I think you saw that a little bit on Tuesday night. Um, you know, his big thing is that that curveball is so devastating. Uh, even the major leaders, you saw him lock a couple of guys up with it on uh, Tuesday night. And it's a matter of that fastball command being able to set that curveball up. And, uh, yeah, yeah I mean, he was, throws, he throws a couple of uh, the umpire once or twice with that curveball. Yeah, exactly. 
and you know, and it, that that isn't as effective if the fastball if he's you know constantly in a in a three one count or he's starting to die off with ball one all the time. So I think that's really really where he comes from in terms of he's still a little bit wild, still has a little bit of command issues, but but if he can harness that, he's actually pretty good moving forward. I think the other thing that you have to watch with him is how he reacts to um, to anything that happens behind him. I know other guys in the Nationals kind of have this uh, reputation, I'll say. Steven Strasburg for years has had Geo. this Geo, exactly, where – you know things, and not not only even things that are out of his control, like Geo and Strasburg have have uh, physically, you know, talked about or physically uh, can be can be witnessed doing. But with Giolito, it's just you know if things aren't going his way. You have, kind of have to watch that he can kind of put a stop to it, as opposed to continuing that downhill roll. Uh, that's not to say that he, he he can't overcome that. It's just adversity is something that. He hasn't had to deal a lot with in his life professionally, and so when he has it, it's interesting to see how he deals with it. Yeah, um, I was actually uh, in cheap blog. Uh, I wrote a piece about Giolito's start on my site, NatchGM.com, if anybody kind of wants to dive in a little deeper. But I was really impressed with the poise he showed on the mound. I mean, he, it did not look like the, the moment was too big for him. I mean, it, the fastball command was a little rough, particularly – uh, with the first hitter, I mean, you could see the nerves, but he really showed a lot of poise, which I was very impressed with. And to your also to your point, that fastball command was not very good the other night. I mean, I think right. he was twenty strikes out of thirty three fastballs, and from the windup, it was nine for twenty. So, I mean, there's there's a lot of work that needs to be done. You know, just getting the ball over or getting a foul ball or what have you with that fastball, because he was not very good the other night, particularly out of the windup. Right. And I know some of it's just he's so big and his limbs are so long that it's hard to be, you know, in sync all the time. It's just it's much harder at six six than it is at six feet. But that's really going to be the separator from him being a, you know, a good starter or a phenomenal starter. Well, and that's a really good point. I, I was talking to someone who, you know, I'll say has watched a lot of these guys come through and, you know, is essentially a scout and. And he was worried about the height issue because, you know, other than than one uh, glaring example, there's not a lot of excessively tall men, big guys, who are consistently great pitchers. Um, and you wonder if Giolito, you know, falls in that in that kind of mix where consistently his release point and to your point, his limbs and is, is this something that he can harness and control? Uh, again, using the one example, like Randy Johnson was able to do. It's funny you say that because if you think about it in the major leagues now, all the starting pitchers seem to be 6'2 to 6'5 at the highest and, and kind of that 220-pound range. They're all right. the sa- they all look kind of the same. Some yep. are a little skinnier, some are a little this, but once you get over that 6'5 height, you don't see a lot of those pitchers. That's another reason why I'm concerned about A.J. Puck in the draft this year. Just too much has to stay in balance. You know, it's right. the reason you don't see a lot of great, really tall golfers. Just too much has to go right in their a- swing. Absolutely. So, uh, Barry, uh, I, I feel like I've, I need to tag you in here. Any thoughts? Anything you you want to chime in with? I I was really looking forward to watching Giolito the other night, and I forgot about it. And by the time I turned the game on, it was in a rain delay, so that worked out great. But yeah, I didn't realize he was so tall. Like I watched the game. I watched the game last night. Um, and when the Nats got the walk off, I see this big tall guy running out to hug who got the hit. I don't remember. And I'm like, that's Giolito. He looks like Will Chamberlain or something. I was like, good Lord. I had no idea he was so tall. I mean, he's built like, and Mick, you know, correct me if I'm wrong. He's built like a blocking tight end in the NFL. I mean, he's 6'6", 6'7", 260, 70 pounds. I mean, he is huge. Yeah, and that's just the thing. It's not just that he's tall. You know, it's he's not like a tall skinny kid. He is as you said, a blocking tight end. And he looks it, too. It's not like this is, you know, a number that's been put up by, you know, like when you're entering the NBA draft and all of a sudden you get two inches taller. Uh, this is not the case at all. He, Whatever he is listed at, he is fully that. Uh, when you see him, say, in the batter's box, he just looks much larger than every other person that came in that batter's box. So it's, it is something to uh, consider about 
his long-term viability. He must destroy that per diem money. I mean, he, he must eat just everything in sight. That's a huge man. Good Lord. So, uh, then I guess the next question I kind of want to ask you guys and, and to wrap up Giolito is just, what, do we see him staying in the rotation the rest of the year? Do you think he comes back to, to visit you, Mick, at A Harrisburg? What, what, do you, what do you think? And, uh, you know, Barry, kind of from a little bit of an outsider's point of view or a little different lens, what are you seeing as well? Well, I, he, was, he was going to be promoted to Syracuse before the Strasburg injury. So if he does come back to the minors, it will be to AAA Syracuse. So, I think, so your time is done with Giolito, I guess. Yes, it is. <laughs> My up close and personal time, yes. So, but I, I think that he has the potential to stick. Um, I think it depends on obviously the extent of Strasburg's injury, and you know, as we tape this on Saturday morning, they still are unsure if he will be able to pitch tomorrow on Sunday. So by the time people are listening. Strasburg may have pitched or Giolito may have pitched again. Um, but I think that also I know a lot of talk on that Twitter is about moving Gio Gonzalez uh, out of the starting rotation because the last five, six starts have not been good for Gio. So they're talk about replacing Giolito, about putting Giolito in that spot in the rotation and moving Gonzalez to the bullpen possibly. Um, I, I can see that happening as well. Uh, there's also been talk about Joe Ross's innings, and so maybe there needs to be something creative between the two of them, uh, because Giolito is also on an innings limit to some extent. So if they want this guy to be available come September and October, uh, they are going to need to do some creative things to get him there. So that's all. All of that into the bag of mix. I'm not really sure what they do moving forward with him after, you know, after Strasburg comes off the DL. Barry. Okay, I, I guess I didn't realize that Gio Gonzalez had been that bad this year. But uh, then again, I'm not used to seeing good pitching, so I don't know what good pitching is anymore. <laughs> well, it's weird. Um, He's been Jekyll or Hyde this year, to be honest with you. I mean, I, I think Gio's first eight starts were, I mean, almost eight for eight in terms of excellence. And now the last six, seven, whatever the number is, has been almost the same, just just equally bad. I mean, he was pretty good, I guess, Thursday night. But he he's been deplorable the last five or six starts. Well, from a selfish standpoint, I hope Giolito pitches tomorrow because I want to see him. And since they're playing my team, I'm sure I'll be watching. So, yeah, I, it, look, it looks more and more like that's going to be the case. You know, the the I would say the the less they have, have uh, knowledge of Strasburg's injury and what he can do, I think that that seems to be the case. Now, mind you, everybody listening on Monday will laugh at me for this after Strasburg throws seven innings, but. I think that Giolito gets the start. I'm not sure it's a bad move just to give Strasburg a little bit of a breather anyways. I agree, but then you know, then you question why he's out there hitting BP the other day with the, the rest of the pitchers. and I, I don't know. It just, it just seems odd to me that they'd have him kind of doing those kinds of I'm just, uh, baseball activities if he's not ready to go. I'm just a big believer in if you can give those guys a, a breather in the middle of the season, a lot of times that really helps if – you know, the next thing you know, you're pitching meaningful games down in, you know, September 15th and, and down the road. I, I I don't think it's a bad thing if those guys, you know, pull a hamstring or something that doesn't have to do with their arm. And a lot of times I actually think it's a good thing. Yeah, and I know and I know with Strasburg, I know because he came back to Harrisburg last season on a rehab start and talking with him then, he really made a lot – or he really – put a lot of thought into that those injuries that he had last season in the beginning of last season were all a result of one injury where he, you know, he tried to come back too soon and it affected the rest of his body. So I think from his standpoint, he'd almost rather sit out at least another start because he doesn't want a chance that he's turning back too quickly and that will have, you know, he'll get injured in some other way moving forward. Yeah. I get the impression with this, like you're saying that uh, he's, taking taking it slowly himself rather than letting the even letting the training staff kind of baby him i think he's trying to do prudent is the right word i don't want to say babying but i think he just wants to be hey i want this to be a three-week injury not a three-month injury exactly so uh, i mean i could talk giolito and and that's all all day long but i think that might be a good place for us to uh kind of cut the conversation and uh cut this episode right here so um Let's uh, wrap the same way we uh, start every show. Um, 
Uh, Barry, how about uh, Twitter, where people can find your work and uh, anything you want to plug? Well, I'm, I'm still infrequently contributing to Banish to the Pen. I've really been slacking lately. It's hard to find stuff to write about in June. You know, because in, in May you've got, hey, this guy's breaking out, and then you kind of hit a low point. And so I'm going to get back on it here hopefully in the next week or two. Uh, the Twitter, like I said earlier, is Gilpdog, G-I-L-P-D-A-W-G. My Twitter's stupid. Don't follow me. And um, I want to wish my mother a happy birthday on Monday, even though she will not listen to this. Happy birthday uh, to your mom. Uh, Mick, say goodbye to the audience. Goodbye, audience. <laughs> no, but <laughs> um, the um, since there was a positive response to the story I did, I, I'm going to look to do some more stories on people in the minor leagues. And uh, I think my next one going, is going to be uh, on um, traveling, I'll say, the, uh, the attractions and the promotions that come to town and and hopefully that'll be a good one. So uh, look for that in the next coming weeks. Monkey Dog Rodeo, you've got to cover. you got to talk Monkey Dog Rodeo. That, that's exactly who I'm trying to target. So It is the creepiest, awesome thing of all time. It, yeah, I, I believe I believe the, the Bryce Harper quote from 2011 on it was, this is the coolest, stupidest thing I've ever seen. Yeah. So that pretty much... I had a little creep factor in there too, but I, I, Bryce was right on it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And Mick, give a plug for your. Uh, I, I think you've got a podcast as well, so uh, throw that yeah, out there. Yeah, uh, I, I do a podcast uh, infrequently. I'll say at this point, but uh, with uh, the Sanders broadcaster Terry Byram, and it's uh, called the Island Chronicles. And if you go to the Harrisburg Sanders uh, website, there's a there'll be uh, some things for uh, the blog, and so click on that, and that kind of will will send you out to the place where we kind of are sticking the the podcast every time we do one. Yeah, definitely. A, a, particularly if you're a Nationals fan or a minor leaguer, uh, you know, a fan of the minor leagues, definitely check it out. It's it's a, definitely a, a quality good listen. So, um, and, and by the way, Terry would be a great person to interview or feature for a column as well. Just I know kind of off the I, top of my head. No, I agree. I I've tried to kind of avoid you know the the home right the, the home aspects. You know, try to kind of open it up into other people. But I I would wholeheartedly agree with that as well. So, uh, Mick and Barry, thank you so very much for coming on uh, and recording a show with me on uh, a Saturday on, as I said, a holiday weekend. I want to thank you guys, um, and uh, I want to wish you guys a happy 4th of July and uh, hope to have you guys back on uh, sometime later this summer or, uh, you know, into the fall. All right. Thanks for having me. Yep. Thanks, Ryan. And that's episode 57 of the Banish to the Pen podcast with my special guests, Barry Gilpin and Mick Reinhardt. Uh, I want to thank both of them for joining me on this holiday weekend and uh, want to thank them. That was a lot of fun. I really enjoy that uh, kind of covering those topics. So thank you very much uh, to those guys. Uh, in addition, a uh, big shout out to uh, everybody involved in Banish to the Pen, the writers, the technical support staff, the editors, uh, everybody involved. Um, like I say, I think we do a really great product each and every day, and um, I hope more and more people uh, check out what's going on online, not just the podcast, but the work that's being done as well. So uh, tell your friends, spread the word, and all that good stuff. So um, one final thing, I want to wish everybody a happy 4th of July, depending on when everybody's listening to this. Um, be safe, watch out for those fireworks, eat and drink well, and all the uh, other good stuff, and enjoy this podcast, uh, hopefully while you are uh, enjoying some fireworks and some family time. So... With that, uh, one final reminder, be nice to your fellow listeners.